Live from WNUR News, I'm Alex Harrison. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, March 12th. One of NU's biggest traditions forced to change due to the pandemic. The 30-hour event obviously had to change a lot because of the pandemic. Um, we had it kind of divided into two portions. Evanston begins to pay reparations to the black community. We want real reparations! Exploring the success of Marvel's WandaVision. I absolutely loved it. The show was so meta. <laughs> like it was like a show within a show, but they were also aware that it was a show within a show. The controversies and drama of the K-pop scene. We're living in such an internet prevalent era where people can say things about you like on anonymous communities. And millennials at war with Gen Z, or are they? Hey, Gen Z, you can suck it. Those stories and more tonight. Northwestern's Dance Marathon is one of the university's biggest philanthropic events, giving over a million dollars a year to charity. But this year's Dance Marathon looked a bit different from years past. Here's reporter Trevor Duggins with the story. Those are the sounds of the Northwestern Dance Marathon, or NUDM, an annual fundraising event that supports the Evanston Community Foundation along with another partner organization. Usually, the year-long fundraising culminates into a 30-hour function that has hundreds of students dancing throughout a weekend and winter quarter. But, along with most other events in the past year, the pandemic forced the NUDM organizers to improvise. To hear about how last week's virtual event was made possible, I spoke to the two executive co-chairs of NUDM. I'm Cami. I'm a uh, current fourth year from Menlo Park, California, um, and I'm one of the executive co-chairs of NUDM this year. I'm Aisha. I'm the other executive co-chair from NUDM this year. I'm also a senior, and I'm from New Delhi, India. We are still a year-long fundraising effort with tons of different events throughout the year. Um, our highlights being weekly trivia that usually happens at Evanston Pub um, in Evanston. Um, we have uh, different fundraising events, different challenge style events uh, that we like to have in person throughout the year. And then in a normal year, all of that fundraising, all of that work on committees leads up to a 30-hour dance marathon. Um, which usually kicks off uh, in a big tent outside of Norris, um, starting at 7 p.m. on Friday and going until 1 a.m. on Sunday morning. This year's dance marathon was held virtually starting March 4th and featured many of the usual activities, just adapted for COVID safety protocols and an online platform. And obviously this year looked really different for NEDM because of the pandemic. Um, one thing we did want to emphasize is the year-long fundraising and engagement effort of all of it. So starting in October, when we recruited all of our dancers, we had um, lots of different engagement events, such as what we call build events, where you can come interact with the kids from Compass to Care and the families from Compass to Care. We had our trivia starting in the fall as well, fundraising challenges starting in the fall, uh, lots of different things that you could do up till the weekend off, even virtually. We were excited to have that. And then the 30-hour event obviously had to change a lot because of pandemic. Um, we had it kind of divided into two portions. So we, we were approved to have an in-person event from the university where dancers signed up for a quick slot to come outside. And then our virtual event was March 4 through 6. And um, that was less dancing, definitely, than our normal 30-hour dance marathon is because we didn't think 30 hours of dancing on Zoom would be fun for anyone. I think it was a lot more challenging to plan this event because 
the nature of a dance marathon is so in person that we really had to recreate entirely what this event looked like while maintaining traditions that our community knew and loved, um, but figuring out how to do this virtually and safely. So I would say it was also really challenging because we just had no idea when we became the executive co-chairs a year ago, almost exactly today, um, that our event would be virtual. I think all of us a year ago today at the beginning of the pandemic thought that there was no way we'd be doing this for a year. So we really, you know, took on this position thinking, planning for an in-person event and planning for more normal times. Normally we have an event that happens every year that we have a blueprint for. We know where to get the tent. We know where to get the lights. We know where to get the DJ. You know, it's, it's much more understood as to what we could do. And this year it was, do we need lights? Do we need a DJ? <laughs> what do we need? So um, definitely more challenging, but really fulfilling as well and really exciting um, to recreate and rethink entirely how this event looks. Despite the major challenges, this year's Dance Marathon helped raise over $600,000 for its two major partners. We have uh, a different beneficiary every year. Um, that is our primary beneficiary. We have a longstanding secondary beneficiary, which is the Evanston Community Foundation. So how it works is 90% of our grant goes to our primary beneficiary, 10% of our grant goes to our secondary beneficiary. Um, and every year, starting in December, we open applications for that. Um, we like to cast the net far and wide and usually have like over 100 applicants each year apply to be the beneficiary. And from there, we all make a unanimous decision as to what the primary beneficiary is and which organization we choose. For us, Compass to Care, um, just to go over what they do, is an organization that ensures children can access life-saving cancer treatment by making travel to and from the hospital free. So they support low-income children who need access to treatment. Um, it's really important work because there are very few child oncology centers across the country. So for Aisha and I, when we read their application and started to get to know them, we were really excited about the opportunity to spread awareness about this issue that we felt like we didn't know about and we felt like the Northwestern community didn't know about either. With students coming back on campus and hope for the coronavirus vaccines, there's cautious optimism for a normal dance marathon next year. But the future of NUDM will be shaped by the creativity and innovation of its future organizers. I don't think any of us know what the summer is going to look like, let alone next March. This time of the year, we'll say that we didn't really think that it was going to be online last year at this time when we took on our positions. But what we're going to advise our successes to do is plan for plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. So plan for a complete, complete normal traditional DM, plan for something where we can have people rotating out of a tent um, in small teams, plan for a completely virtual option, and definitely more hybrid options in between. So we're going to ask them to plan for all different contingencies, but our priority will be making sure that it's safe and very engaging for dancers. The only thing I can think to add is, you know, it wasn't just Aisha and I, we have an amazing executive board. Uh, it's 20 other people who all were leading their own committees that constantly showed such resilience and they constantly pivoted and they constantly changed their plans um, and really were still committed and still cared so much about Compass to Care that they wanted to do everything that they did um, to make this year a success. And we're really proud of the total that we were able to raise despite all of the challenges and the people that we were able to do it with. For WNUR News, I'm Trevor Duggins. The city of Evanston is set to become the first place in America to institute a real reparations program, but some community members are critical of the current proposal. I have the scoop on Evanston's reparations debate. The concept of reparations in the U.S. is nothing new. The call to financially repair black Americans for past injustices, whether for enslavement, Jim Crow era oppression, redlining, or others, is as old as the end of enslavement itself 
beginning with the promise of 40 acres and a mule to every freed slave at the end of the Civil War. But so far, that's all reparations for black Americans has been, a concept, talked about at many times but never materialized. That is, until now. Evanston, Illinois has become the first government in the United States at any level to actually approve a reparations initiative, committing to a $10 million budget in 2019. And now, the eyes of the nation are on Evanston as it considers its first real material action, the Restorative Housing Reparations Program. Approval for this program, however, has been far from unanimous. We want real reparations! We want real reparations! The proposed housing program functions like this. $400,000 will be allocated to providing housing grants of up to $25,000 each to be used on paying a down payment or mortgage on a home or for improving an already owned property. To qualify for the grant, black Evanstonians must either themselves be a victim of housing discrimination in the city or be a descendant of a victim from 1919 to 1969. The reparations initiative, and the housing proposal specifically, have been spearheaded by 5th Ward Alderman Robin Rue Simmons. Rue Simmons worked with local and national organizations to determine what local case for reparations should be focused on in Evanston. Reparations is to uh, make amends for egregious crimes or actions against a community, and our local case for reparations in Evanston was found in housing. But some black community members are pushing back, saying that the program should either not be voted on until a new council is elected and inaugurated in May, or that it should be named something other than reparations. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Sebastian Nalls, and I'm one of the organizers with Evanston Rejects Racist Reparations. Community group Evanston Rejects Racist Reparations, or ERRR, launched on Sunday, February 28th, and is headed by former mayoral candidate Sebastian Knowles and residents and activists Rose Cannon and Kevin Brown. On Saturday, March 6th, ERRR held a press conference outside of the MedMen Cannabis Dispensary, whose tax revenues will go to fund the reparations initiative. Speaking to both residents and local media, Brown argued that because of the current proposal's limited budget and qualification standards, it shouldn't be considered real reparations. Reparation is meant to close the racial wealth gap, and that's what we want in Evanston. We want a, a real program. We don't want a program that's a fraud. We don't want a program that is fraudulent and is going to be presented to the United States of America as real reparations. Knowles added that because of the attention Evanston is receiving nationally for the program, any program that goes into effect will have impacts on possible reparations programs across the nation. It's the idea that we're putting out a reparations program that has not been fully flushed out, that there's no plan going forward. And that's going to be seen by other municipalities. They'll see this in the housing program that's currently uh, set, to, set to be put forward and say that's reparations, that's what we want to put in our city, municipality, state, etc. Uh, and that's why I think it's so incredibly dangerous to the movement as a whole. City Council is expected to vote on the proposal later this month. For WNUR News, I'm Alex Harrison. WandaVision, set in the Marvel Comics universe, premiered on Disney Plus in January, captivating audiences worldwide. But why was it so successful? Reporter Maria Jimena Aragon has more. 6.5 million views its debut weekend, nine episodes, and thousands of theories later, the show that took the streaming world by storm. The highly anticipated introduction to Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe 
WandaVision's sitcom-inspired episodes travel through the decades, starting from the 50s up until present day. For Weinberg sophomore Abigail Ramon Algram, the show was more than just another Marvel project. I absolutely loved it. The show was so meta. <laughs> like It was like a show within a show, but they were also aware that it was a show within a show. Um, the costume designs for each decade that WandaVision went through were impeccable. The script writing was wonderful. Um, and I think just like the small details, like you'd look at like the cinematography, it'd be like a small screen when it was the 50s, 60s, and then it would expand out when it got back to like MCU current times. Just the detail and editing that went into it was so impressive. The detail served more than just aesthetic purposes. It left viewers each week wondering what was going to happen next and quickly gained popularity online. A sentiment Medill senior Zach Bright shared with many others on and offline. Um, it was like kind of almost as if how I would imagine working in like an office and then like having water cooler talk, but not like boring like that, but being able to kind of talk about a show that you're watching alongside other people um, online. And also with my roommate too, we've stayed up the past couple um, Thursday nights up until 2 a.m. when it releases to watch it as it came out, um, which was really fun. Ahead of staying up late to watch the show, fans shared theories and comic book explanations online, cultivating a community across social media platforms each week. The fan base is so strong that Medill sophomore Talia Schulhoff's theory on the significance of the popular kids show Yo Gabba Gabba in episode 7 gained her 3.8 million views and over 10,000 comments. But the thing is, I wasn't expecting it to get so much attention. I was just like pointing out some coincidences as like an Easter egg, what I thought the Yo Gabba Gabba thing meant. And it just happened to get a lot of attention. Half of my comments were like, girl, you're reaching the MCU. Like Kevin Foggy's watching this in laughing because he's like, this, we just put this in because we like Yo Gabba Gabba. And other people were like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. I mean, when you think about confusion, no one really likes to be confused. But for some reason, like when it comes to the MCU, I love being confused because it, it occupies my mind in a way that just makes me think and try to analyze it. And that's what they want you to do. And then when you see either those theories coming true or something completely different happening, it's just a mind blowing experience. The theme songs of each episode were written by Oscar winning songwriters, Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, the same duo that wrote songs for Frozen, Coco and more. Needless to say, WandaVision's songs were stuck in many people's minds. I mean, Agatha all along, I just did not see that coming at all. That was so fun. <laughs> like, that was so fun. It was stuck in my head. Like, like I don't know who was in charge of the music on that show, but they really, like, moved out of the locker. The 62-second song sung by Northwestern alum Katherine Hahn has 1.7 million streams and counting on Spotify. It had so many people excited that it was truly Agatha all along. I love Katherine Hahn, loved her in Parks and Rec, love her, just all of her comedic sitcom projects that she's done. And especially because she's a Northwestern alum, it makes me feel excited. It's like Northwestern is canon in the MCU. As the series came to an end on March 5th, many were left with their own impressions of the finale and the future of the MCU. Yeah, okay. I, th I think personally, and I might be in like a minority, I don't know. I think the first half of the show was really executed well, and the second half was good, but it wasn't like as good as the first half was. I really like the first three episodes where 
they don't break the not break the fourth wall. They don't explain what's going on right away. And I almost wish they had never really explained what was happening as clearly as they did um, by like taking us out of that universe. Like I wish we stayed in the TV universe and we learned more and we could also like figure out for ourselves as viewers, like what is happening. I was very like pleasantly surprised with how much closure they gave like Wanda as a character. Cause I do think like at the end of the day, while it was like an MCU series, it really was just about like this person and like stages of grief and how they were like dealing with that. So I do think they did a really great job of just by the end of the series, you feel like you really understand this character so much better and her relationship with like Vision. I felt like that was something not really delved into in the other movies. And I feel like there was a lot of closure with that and understanding her powers and who she is. With a slate of more Marvel movies and TV shows to be released this year, watching WandaVision is up to you. But Talia leaves us one piece of advice. If you haven't watched it, what are you doing? Like, how, how have you been dealing with your Twitter and your TikTok being completely overwhelmed with theories and conversation about it? Just get into it, don't wait. Standing by, this is Maria Jimena Aragon, WNUR News. Korean pop music is popular throughout the world. But what happens when toxic behavior overlaps with the music? Reporter Jung Yun Jennifer Kim discusses allegations and stories surrounding bullying in the K-pop scene. Recently, the K-pop and K-drama industries have grown out of control. At least 20 anonymous users have confessed that they are victims of bullying, and these bullies are currently K-pop stars and actors. While some have admitted, others were proven to be false accusations. Many victims began gaining courage and speaking up about their past experiences. As a former Korean public school student, Jae Hong Min wasn't surprised that bullying took place. What did surprise him was something else. I'm a little surprised that these people were trying to get into the entertainment industry and trying to become celebrities and that um, they tried to cover up their past actions because um, we're living in such an internet prevalent era where people can say things about you like on anonymous communities. But student Yong Sung Kim claims that we were all once guilty for immature comments and actions. What they did was happen during uh, their school years, most of the time in like middle school or high school years. And I feel like that period is a time when you're allowed to ma make mistakes. And as long as you um, turn out to be a different person and you learn from your mistakes, then I feel like you should be given a second chance after uh, you become an adult. Min, on the other hand, questions what it means to become a better person. Even if you do mature, he wonders how the public is supposed to trust anything on the media. Of course, pe pe there are people saying that, oh, we should give, give these people another chance. Maybe they can reflect and learn from their actions, but I just can't think of um, what sort of concrete actions will show that these people have been reflecting and trying to change. Because this issue has grabbed the attention of many, people have begun labeling the movement. Min believes that the second Me Too movement is quite appropriate. Kind of similar to the Me Too movement in that um, like people just calling out these like famous people or ce celebrities that have been bullies like um one like 
like that's like like that's a really difficult thing to like to talk about those things on a public space like the internet and to um if you just say these things then people might not believe you but we have this chain of um just people confessing about how they've been bullied by these famous people in the past however kim strongly disagrees he believes that the scale of the me too movement is incomparable he says a modern day witch hunt may be the more fitting term i don't feel like bringing up stuff that happened years ago in school can is on the same level of um adult sexual harassment or sexual assault that's one of the reasons why i feel like this is a modern day witch hunt because sure they might have done something bad in the past but that doesn't dictate who they are as a person moreover who they are as a person now according to kim the worst part of these scandals are the hate comments directed to these celebrities even worse these hate comments are mostly calling them ugly or body shaming them and not related to their past actions i don't think anyone should be subject to um mass hate for a dispute that happened between two or several people hey you look like this or hey you're you sound like this or your acting is like this like all of those negative comments that just is on a whole different level of wrong while these scandals continue some people have taken a step further to petition for actors to step off of their shows in fact many advertisement companies have called off their contracts with celebrities involved in such scandals hopefully no one is hurt during the process and justice is served this was strong and jennifer kim for wnur news millennials have a bone to pick with generation z or at least that's what tiktok tells us But is that really how it is? Bailey Richards reports. Hey Gen Z, you can suck it. You can't tell me what to wear. If you've been online at all during the past couple of weeks, you've probably seen all sorts of headlines about a supposed war occurring between millennials and Generation Z or Gen Z. And if you have TikTok, you've probably seen all sorts of videos from both sides of this so-called war. To put it simply, some of Gen Z, keyword some, has decided that things like side parts and skinny jeans are no longer in style. You know how trends come and go, and that has led some millennials, again, keyword some, who like their jeans tight and parts to the side, to retaliate. And from there, things have spiraled out of control. <laughs> some of the worst retaliations have come in song form. Here is a snippet of a song that musical artist Sarah Hester Ross posted to her TikTok that subsequently went viral. Hey Gen Z, you can suck it. can't tell me what to wear cuz i've been rocking this side part since you had kermit on your underwear so cute the song was pretty poorly received overall but a select few millennials enjoyed it posting tiktoks of themselves lip syncing to it well you guessed it rocking side parts and skinny jeans another song also emerged again from the millennial side but this one is a parody to god bless the usa by lee greenwood Of course. <laughs> It's hard to tell because the original video has been deleted, but it seems to have been created by TikTok user at not_amelia_shepherd. Here's a bit of that. And I'm proud to be a millennial with my side part and skinny jeans. And I won't be told 
what to wear or how to use emojis. And again, this song was primarily ill-received, with the exception of a few millennials. According to commentary YouTuber Eddie Burback, who lies at the cusp of the two generations, these song responses were what really escalated this war and brought it to the mainstream media's eye. In his recent video titled Gen Z vs. Millennials, he had this to say. Why do you care if a 15-year-old thinks you're cool? This is so embarrassing. But he also noticed that some of Gen Z's responses to millennials' hostility were also ridiculous and disrespectful. Like this TikTok made by user at Guero underscore Trey. Aw, oh, Gen Z's so mean to us. What do millennials ever do to you? School shootings. Yeah, I don't care about the skinny jeans or the side part. Columbine, Sandy Hook, that's you. That's your generation. That's your trend. Burback was quick to point out the faults in this argument, calling it not only extremely disrespectful, but just so beyond stupid. These are very tragic things that happen, and what, you're frustrated with who? What millennials are you, who, who's the enemy here? Burback says that grouping a bunch of people together by age and blaming everyone in the group for the horrible things that a few individuals have done does not make any sense. As with members of any generation, every millennial and member of Gen Z is very different. You know who's a millennial? Me. You know who's also a millennial? Kim Jong-un. So like, how could you be like, yeah, millennials wear skinny jeans. I don't think either of us do, but that's probably all we have in common. To answer the question that Burback posed, who is the enemy here, Northwestern sophomore Lily Castillo has an answer. I think what we should really be doing is not fighting, you know, Gen Z and millennials, but instead we should be coming together and taking on the boomers because the boomers are the ones who kind of ruined everything for us from like the economy to the planet. Um, so yeah, that's who we should really be thinking about, not fighting amongst each other. TikToker Madeline Pendleton offers another perspective, arguing that this whole thing is natural and even invites Gen Z to make fun of herself and fellow millennials as she did with Generation X. That is the natural order of things. You're supposed to roast the generation that came before you. That's your job. As a member of Gen Z myself, I don't think a complete and total ceasefire is in question. And also, some of the jokes that have come out of this debacle have been absolutely hilarious. But I think that both sides can certainly be more respectful and perhaps focus more of our energy on issues that actually matter. So keep that in mind, but in the words of Pendleton. It is our duty to roast those older than us. Go forth and roast. Signing off for WNUR News, this is Bailey Richards. That's all for the WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. Our producer today was me, Alex Harrison. Our reporters are Trevor Duggins, myself, Jennifer Kim, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Bailey Richards. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Alex Harrison. Thanks for listening. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. Your next news break will be next quarter. We'll be back in the spring. Now, back to scheduled programming.